From The Conversation, this is Don't Call Me Resilient. I'm Vinita Srivastava. I wanted to document what was going on here in my community on the South Side because I want to make the sound visible. I want to make this community visible. I wanted to make it real and wanted to dive in deep for listeners to hear that Black and brown communities are complex communities. When you think of a protest, one that fills the streets, do you remember what you saw? Can you close your eyes and remember the sounds that surrounded you? For me, sound has always resonated. It's something that I remember long after the streets are empty and quiet again. Maybe it's the sound of a chant, no justice, no peace. Or I can't breathe at a Black Lives Matter protest. Or a theater shaking from feet stomping after a speech by a brown queer rights activist. I can still hear that. I can also hear the sounds of Toronto police horses clopping on concrete during a 92 police brutality protest. Everyday sounds are important too. The normal sounds of a Saturday, music from a fruit stall, neighbors yelling hey to each other, the clattering of the Q train in Brooklyn. These sounds can define a neighborhood, and if we don't pay attention to them, as life changes, sounds can disappear. Today, I'm speaking with two people involved in sound studies. They believe sound is an element of resistance, and they explain why, in our hypervisualized age of Instagram perfect photos, sound is so compelling. Today's is a different kind of episode. Instead of our usual interview style, we're going to let the sound guide us. Starting right now. These are the sounds of anti-Trump protests from Los Angeles and Louisville, Kentucky in 2017. The tracks are hosted on the Cities and Memory Project. All right, everybody, clap your hands, clap your hands. It's going to be loud. Everybody, clap your hands. Clap your hands. No Trump! We're used to visually striking images. If you think of news coverage, we often have a newscaster speaking over the sound. There might be protests in the background, but that's not highlighted. The voice of the reporter is what's foregrounded. And then occasionally they might be interviewing protesters. But there's never a focus on what does the environment sound like there. I am you, you are me. I am you, you are me. And when we don't listen to that, we're missing information. is very fruitful for starting more discussions about how racism affects communities. For instance, 
how is racism not simply a visual phenomenon, but an acoustic one as well? How are spaces policed not only physically, but sonically as well? That was Nimalan Yoganathan, a PhD candidate at Concordia University. And in the background, a track by Christopher De Laurenti from a 1999 WTO protest. Nimalan studies protest tactics, and he looks at how sound practitioners have contributed to anti-racist movements. Some of what he explores are the sounds of protest. But he's also fascinated by the idea of witnessing and recording everyday life as a form of resistance. I also spoke with Norman Long, a born and raised resident of the south side of Chicago. Norman is a sound artist, designer, and composer who works to document and record the everyday reality of his community. He has graduate degrees in landscape architecture from Cornell University and in fine arts from the San Francisco Art Institute. Norman uses his audio clips and music to create soundscapes. The soundscape here is a track by Norman called Black Space in Winter. And he takes people around the South Side on sound walks to teach them how to truly listen to the community. He says that documenting the sound around him is a direct action against racism's erasure of communities of color. You're writing yourself into history. You're taking your position as an artist or as a recorder seriously and putting it in the conversation yourself, not waiting for other institutions or other people to do it for you. For instance, a reporter come to your community and report about it. I wanted to document what was going on here in my community on the South Side because I want to make the sound visible. I want to make this community visible. I wanted to make it real and wanted to dive in deep for listeners to hear that black and brown communities are complex communities. These soundscapes, just like landscapes, are a complex network of services, of relationships, of ecologies. And to make it just similar as as complex as other non-Black communities as well, because Chicago is still pretty much a segregated city. And a lot of people were taught, like white folks and non-Blacks, they were saying, well, don't go to the South Side. It's dangerous. There's nothing over there. I was studying people like Mbana Kentako out of Springfield, Illinois in the 80s. Europe and his crime in progress called Springfield, Illinois, and we got to say welcome. 
to another edition of Notes on the Devil's News. He started recording soundscapes of his neighborhood in the John Hayes Project Housing Complex. And so he would gather field recordings, whether it be sounds of the police, sounds of police interventions, testimonies from neighbors talking about police brutality. And then he would incorporate all that into his radio shows. He would often do these remixes, which I listen to it as a form of soundscape composition where he's incorporating these field recordings and conveying a message and often in a very subversive way. So he would mix roots reggae music with interviews with people and make these political statements. It's important to think about how listening can be a radical act. Okay. Now, yep. is that everybody that's in the house? Where's the babies We're at, y'all? The okay, the babies, everybody okay. in the house is sitting right here. We're going to do a quick security sweep of the house, and then... There's uh, no point, there's nobody here. <laughs> Go ahead. So they're attacked, they got the whole house, y'all. Just his mere presence as a witness to the soundscapes around him and he's legally blind as well. So I think that's a good example of how his listening is very subversive because while the police are using visual surveillance, he's creating his own kind of oral counter-surveillance and broadcasting this live. That was sound from Bana Kantako from NPR and from YouTube. And I said, well, why did you say that, Mike, Mike? He said, because I've been dreaming of death. 1023 at 1204. Right now you're listening to a soundscape called Fit the Description, produced by Christopher De Laurenti, a white composer and lecturer at John Hopkins University. It was made from recordings of the protest in Ferguson, Missouri, after police murdered a young black man, Michael Brown, in 2014. We're going to need crowd control here. And I said, well, why did I'm you say that, Mike? Mike? County. He said, because I've been dreaming of death. I've been seeing Emergency pictures police. of death. He said, I see bloody point. sheets hanging on the clothesline. The piece was commissioned by the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Chris collected sounds from social media to try and disrupt the mainstream version of news for his primarily white audiences. He calls it a protest symphony. He's sitting down, begging for the protesters not to run. You can read more about Chris's work and the ethics of sound gathering and curation in our show notes. St. Louis County shot rubber bullets, uh, mace, and let them dogs out. And use of dogs that was before the quick Ferguson trip got on police fire. Appears to have been they started that. That's what started the riot. Then when the riot broke out, they left us here to die. We said he's telling the tape on blood. They said we're going to die. bit by a police dog. Many people wrote about the quiet of life during the pandemic. But Norman has a different story to tell. He serves as an ear witness in his community. And he spent a lot of time during the pandemic recording the changes in sound in his environment. <laughs> 
This is a track he recorded during lockdown to share information about his community. Over the last three years with tracking, for me, it was tracking, recording, like, okay, what does this pandemic on the southeast side sound like? Well, there's still factories, the supply chain still running. We have a rail yard, so rail traffic is still going. There's an arterial street going by, so people are still going to work. There is a police station, so police are still policing. We still have this noise, there's still this hum, so there's not so much of a hush. There's a hum that goes on here that would not be the same in, for instance, a center of the city like downtown where there will be quietness. So when we were talking about how communities change from particularly unfair housing and real estate practices to issues like the pollution or disinvestment where there is no money coming in, there's no different people coming in, there's people leaving and there's businesses leaving and citizens leaving. So how does that affect the soundscape? And when you think about it beyond the capitalistic view on community development, but if you think about it and just replace that with an awareness of just really diving deep into what your community is and just think about listening and walking and recording as caring and archiving and mapping in that sense that it's not in service of some developer somewhere. It's not in service of even a larger city or the municipality or anything that it's sourced from the community themselves. I've written about the Palestinian electronic musician Mukata, who often field records. He gathers recordings around Ramallah in the West Bank and whether it be markets or the sounds of checkpoints or just daily life under occupation. And so for him, just walking around and listening and recording is very important. And he talks about how recording, especially, and incorporating classic Arabic music that often is erased or lost. He talks about the music that his grandparents listened to and how when their house was ceased from them, they lost all their records. And so he uses music and sampling sound as an archiving practice. So it's a way to keep Palestinian culture alive.
Another musician closer to home who has been dealing with massive changes in his community is Mustafa the Poet. Mustafa Ahmed was on the Juno Awards the night before our recording, accepting an award for Best Alternative Album. Mustafa stood on stage wearing a cream kaftan and over that a bulletproof vest with the word POET in capital letters across his chest. It's a comment about the death and violence from guns around him. The 25-year-old singer-songwriter is the first black artist to win this award. He's from Toronto's Regent Park, the first public housing project in Canada, which has been aggressively bulldozed and gentrified over the last decade. Here is his acceptance speech as recorded by CBC. I wrote a record on death. I wrote a record on loss, on the loss of friends in Regent Park. And I had to do it because as they were breaking down my community, I realized in that moment that the only people that were going to be able to document the memories of my friends were the people that knew them. I watched Canadian publications announce the deaths of my friends using mugshots descriptors being dated criminal records, and I knew then that I had to rewrite their memories. During Mustafa's performance, black and white photos of his community flashed on stage behind him as he sang Stay Alive, a song about the friends he'd lost to violence in Regent Park. Mustafa invited some of his friends to join him on stage, and they sang the song together. All of these drives, all of these Resistance can be loud and quiet, right? And sometimes both simultaneously. If we think about silence, when we think about, for instance, the civil rights movement in the 60s, we have this notion of very civil, very quiet, very respectful, following a certain degree of decorum. But there's a whole mythology around that. And while, yes, it might appear to be more silent than, say, more recent Black Lives Matter protests, there was a lot of radical forms of sounding taking place. And we can think about the radical silence. There's an author, Tina Kemp, in her book, Listening to Images. She talks about mugshots of freedom riders who protested at lunch counters and buses in the Jim Crow South. And she has this idea of listening to these pictures, listening to the lower frequencies in these pictures, like the hums. And the politics of refusal that these people engaged with in, for instance, mugshots, just by subtly grinning in the mugshot, like in defiance. And it's refusing this negation and silencing imposed on them by the state, by the police. And so just these quiet acts are very radical. I was just thinking about my own experiences, particularly with going to grad school and doing a sound work. And having these really negative experiences, it was like people were completely confused because a lot of the work I was doing at the time specifically was these sort of like glitchy sounds that are silent sounds. And I think there was an expectation 
that I was supposed to be more vocal or more entertaining or more whatever it was as a person of color doing sound work that I should be doing something that's louder. I think that it's extremely important that the range of protests, the the range of frequency, the range of amplitude that people of color have in sort of protest or any expression is very important. And I was just thinking about the soundscape or like being a silent protest, being in sort of like a Woolworths in 1955 or something like that at a counter probably was very loud. It was the loudness of everybody else around them, I imagine. And in certain ways, it's still the same way. Certain people of color go into white spaces and they can be silent and all of a sudden there's all this noise going around them. I've written about moving beyond everyday gestures. There is also the NFL players, Black NFL players, Marshawn Lynch, and then Malcolm Jenkins later on, who built on the practice of of Marshawn Lynch. But he, for a couple of years, engaged in this refusal to speak to the media. And he did this kind of performative silence where he refused to answer questions and he would sit in press briefings and just sit quietly or make comments, these vague responses that confused reporters. And so what's interesting about that is that people often assumed that he was just being kind of ridiculous and it wasn't a serious form of protest. But some people have written about how this was actually very intentional. He's essentially like a performance artist where he was using his intentional unvoicing. So this is a way where he can control his narrative by refusing to speak, refusing to even engage. I got 20 seconds that I'm finna sit here with my mouth closed and look at you. Can I make a prediction or not really? So we often have a lot of talk about amplifying voices and giving a voice to people, which is important, but also by people intentionally removing their voice from the discourse, it can be powerful as well. And so that's an example of refusal and silence, which I find could be as powerful as loud, noisy agitation. If we look at noise first, we often think about the loud sounds of protest, of course. But one idea I'm interested in is this idea of moving away from the centrality of the voice which, yes, the voice is very important and these testimonies are are critical, but what about the ambient sound? What about the sonic gestures that are happening around the voice, around the demands that are being vocalized? How are these soundscapes interrupted? One good example would be the Idle No More round dances that occupied shopping centers around Canada and the United States in 2012, 2013, over Christmas time. And so we can imagine what the Christmas time soundscape sounds like in shopping centers. These indigenous protesters, they took over the central meeting place of malls and engaged with these massive round dances with drumming and singing that echoed throughout the building and in many cases literally shook the building and interrupted the architecture. 
It sends a strong statement, a kind of interruption of capitalism, of the flow of commercial goods, interrupting, making a statement about the stolen land that these commercial centers are built on. And so it was a very powerful message sent sonically and not only visually. That was sound from a 2012 Idle No More protest gathered by Paula Kerman. Norman and Nimelin both talk about how important it is to listen to the sounds around us. It's a way to critically engage with our communities. And it's one method we can use to pay attention to the forces of power in our environment. And they say anyone can learn to listen deeply, even children. Something that I feel hopeful about is that when I first started studying electroacoustic music as an undergrad, I remember that's when I first discovered sound walking. And I remember helping the late Andrew McCartney, who is a very important Canadian soundscape scholar. And I would help her lead sound walks with especially elementary school students. And I remember the curiosity, but also the attention of children and their engagement with the soundscape that many adults have trouble doing. In these sound walks, we would often have discussions and ask kids about what they heard, what they didn't hear, what was being masked, what was more prominent sounds. And that often leads to, you know, not overtly political conversations, but it starts developing this critical thinking about what is happening in your environment even if it's a very basic level, like why are there more cars? Sometimes I'll take sound walks with my seven-year-old son and we both have these kind of discussions about like, why are there more of these sounds and less of these sounds and how are they changing? What is pleasant? What is unpleasant? And so it helps you engage. I don't think someone has to be an active organizer or protester to better engage with their environment and engage with racism, engage with gentrification, engage with the soundscapes of police brutality or just everyday policing. I think it's just another very important tool that is not difficult to do. And we all walk, you know, people take walks outside, but we often forget to listen, right? I think it has a lot of potential. This track we've been listening to is called Washington Park Mix 2016, and it's something Norman created to document black and brown life on Chicago's South Side, where he invites both insiders and outsiders to follow him on guided sound walks.
I think it puts them in a mindset of like, you're not being a voyeur or some sort of explorer or something like that. What I'm trying to do for everybody in the group is to ground people where they are in this place. So to have that mindset of, okay, you're not just here to like, ooh, look at this cool place. Oh, I've never been here before. And, you know, look at that. My intention is not for people to have that experience. It's not to guide people through a collection of sounds. And then they go back and forget about it. I give them a briefing on what the community is that they're walking in and why this particular space is important. I've done this many times at Washington Park, which is in the middle of a Black community. It's a huge, huge park that was designed by Frederick Wall Olmsted. And it's completely interesting, the fact that it's named Washington Park. That's not how it was named when it first started. And we get into this idea of these parks being named after presidents, military leaders from the Union or Confederate Army. We go through that. It was originally called South Park. It had nothing to do with any president at all. But understanding where and how the community changed, because it was a rich white area, then became all black. Listen to how it sounds and how it's made. And then you'll see how the park accommodates different cultures and different changes that had gone on. It's surrounded by a black community. It's also surrounded by the University of Chicago as well. But it's also a place where socialists, members of the Nation of Islam, and even Sun Ra had their own speaking platforms there. So it was more like a place for different kinds of black thinking. I would like for them <laughs> to remain quiet just as a way to take in more things. But the last one I did at Washington Park, they weren't too quiet. <laughs> one is a very functional thing to prepare them to listen, to be more patient, slow down their mind and slow down their breathing. There's not so much walking with a sense of, oh, I'm on this walk and I have to get to this one place and this one place. It's more about just step by step, breath by breath, this sort of thing. And so it's really to slow down. So it's like half self-care, it's half about preparing people to listen. also do listening exercises where I'm asking people to at first listen to the closest sound they can hear and then listen to the furthest sound. So you're calibrating your ears to the soundscape so that you're walking through the soundscape and being more aware of the sounds that are going on within your particular range, but also being able to understand the differences between these spaces, which might seem all the same, visually might seem the same, but 
there are different things going on, but your visual is saying, well, no, this seems all the same, but it may not be. What Jennifer Lynn Stover calls decolonizing listening, I felt like one of the tenants was listening out into and for each other. And this is difficult because, okay, we're individuals, but we're also listening out for each other. Some of the practices that she was referring to were particular practices within Black communities. And a lot of this was Black communities, enslaved communities, and also going through Reconstruction and going through Jim Crow. Some of the listening or dishonest culture was about listening out for each other. So in a way of protecting, listening out for. For Norman, once you pay attention to the sounds, you can't unhear them. For him, it's one way to help bridge our divides. When we get to these sound walks where it's open, you know, there's black folks, white folks, and different people in different communities, how do we listen to each other? And when I do these walks, you're listening to things like, for instance, not just about bird sounds. Oh, what should we be listening to? We're opening up that discussion or saying, oh, well, this is just noise. I don't hear anything. Of course, you hear a lot of things. I think deep listening can and has affected people within their communities to be more open to understanding people who are not like them and to really just in a certain way get rid of that trance of us and them of separation, being separated from your neighbors or your ecology listening, deep listening, is to get rid of that sense of separation. So there are these political lines, but there's also these racial lines. It helps to get rid of that trance, at least for a while. And I think that when we do listening, we could also do this in our own communities. So it's just not people of color lecturing or white people needing us to teach them anything. Everybody has that mindset of connection and that we can connect on our own and then we can connect together as well. That's it for this episode of Don't Call Me Resilient. Norman and Nimelin, thank you so much for sharing your wealth of knowledge on sound as resistance. Let us know what you're thinking after that conversation. You can email us the old school way, or you can find us online. I'm on Twitter at writevinita. That's at W-R-I-T-E-V-I-N-I-T-A. 
And don't forget to tag our producers at ConversationCA. Use the hashtag Don't Call Me Resilient. And if you'd like to read more about the sounds of protest and resistance, go to theconversation.com. We have all kinds of information in our show notes with links to stories and research. Finally, if you like what you heard today, please help spread the love. Tell a friend about us or leave us a review. Those really help on whatever podcast app you're using. These are the sounds you heard on today's episode. You can find links to all of them in our show notes. Washington Park Mix 2016 by Norman Long. Idle No More Round Dance Flash Mob at the West Edmonton Mall in Edmonton, recorded by Paula Kerman from YouTube. The voice of NFL football player Marshawn Lynch is from ESPN. Live at the WTO protest, November 30th, 1999, by Christopher De Laurenti. Black Space in Winter by Norman Long. Stay Alive by Mustafa. Mustafa's Juno acceptance speech from the CBC. Takira Jamaya by Mukata. Fit the Description by Christopher De Laurenti. Mbana Kantako from NPR, also from YouTube. As well as Sound from the Cities and Memory Project from Louisville and Los Angeles. Don't Call Me Resilient is a production of The Conversation Canada. This podcast was produced with the grant for journalism innovation from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This series is produced and hosted by me, Vinita Srivastava. My co-producer on this episode is sound editor Lija Navarro. Our other series producer is Haley Lewis, and Vaishnavi Dandekar is our assistant producer. Jennifer Moroz is a consulting producer. Lisa Verano is our audience development editor, and Scott White is the CEO of The Conversation Canada. And if you're wondering who wrote and performed the music we use on the pod, that's the amazing Zaki Ibrahim. The track is called Something in the Water. 